Hi, and welcome to the Changes Ahead podcast. Giving space to the often unheard questions, doubts, hopes, and challenges facing the church in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm Stephen. And I'm Kathy, and we invite you to join us as we imagine the changes ahead. This is a topic that I have wanted to talk about for a very long time. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that as people are listening in, they may be wondering why this topic of intimacy and sex on the changes ahead. It's a great question, Kathy. Why have you wanted to talk about this for so long? Well, on a personal level, Sean and I have done a lot of pre-marriage counseling. And once people were married, we wanted to keep on mentoring them through the different stages of life so that they're not left alone. But we don't do this very well in our churches. And Joe really does speak to this in this interview. And the reality of it not being talked about in church spaces adds to the the feeling, I think, of shame that the topic mm. itself, before we've even talked about it, even the, the topic itself can instill feelings of shame in people. And that's really tragic, right? With this this wonderful gift that we have as humans, that we can't even have a conversation about it. Exactly. And I think this is, again, what Jo does really well, is she demystifies this as a topic so that it hopefully will begin to feel easier to mm. talk about. Mm. And I think what it's highlighting is that when we can't, then it does mean their harm is left unexposed. Mm. And I wanted to add, when we experience harm and pain in our bodies, we don't leave that behind, Stephen. Hmm. It goes with us into whatever spaces we're gathering as church. Hmm. And I think we need, as the church, to to become more aware because we're called to care. Hmm. And this is an area we need to care about more. Yeah. To care about in a way that is is actually going to help rather than just add to the the shame or the the taboo of, of it within those spaces, right? Exactly. And I think, too, just to hear some basic and really grounded good information Mm. that helps inform us. Yeah. And one of the things, I mean, it comes up a few times in the episode, but as as far as our church spaces are concerned, the the messages around gender, yeah, the gendered messages that are received, either implicitly or sometimes even explicitly. And I think, too, I loved the conversation around a reframing that, Stephen, our bodies are good. (laughs) Yeah. And that's really, it's a very important message for us to be talking about. Yeah. And there are so many good messages from Joe in this episode. So let's listen in. Joe, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. And thank you again for making the time to chat with us on this really important topic. I am so happy to be here. Maybe as we begin, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what makes you tick? Cool. So my roles, so I'm what's called a sex and betrayal therapist, or we could split them up and go, I'm a sex therapist, and then I'm also a betrayal trauma specialist. So that means that I work with couples or with women and do, my kind of specialties would be sexual dysfunction, problematic sexual behavior, and then jumping over into my betrayal trauma space. Mm -hmm. And that's where there might be lots of infidelity or lots of behaviors in the relationship that were problematic for one of the partners, felt like a violation, et cetera, and recovering from that. 
do a range of talks and workshops for people around healthy sexuality what does that look like for couples particularly or how do you prepare for that as a single person if you're anticipating relationships and then I've spent maybe five years six years researching porn and Mm. media influences on particularly young people but we know that adults consume porn and they consume media as well Mm. and so I've done a lot of research into what's shaping essentially sexual culture Wow, Joe, that's so interesting. And I suppose what I'm thinking is, how did you get to be on this journey? What led you to do this kind of training and want to specialize in, in this area? Yeah, so it's kind of one that I sort of struggle to answer myself. So I guess right from when I was a child, I was really interested in bodies, mm. in sexuality, as soon as I knew that was a thing in relationships, and also secrets. So I remember being, you know, seven, eight years old and being really curious about the fact that some people had big secrets and they felt they couldn't share those and how important it was that people had someone to tell their secrets to. Are you saying as a young child, you had that already awareness that people needed to tell their secrets? Yeah, it's very strange. I don't really know why. I just, I would look at people and be like, you know, imagine if something really bad happened to them, but they could never tell anyone. (laughs) And and so I developed this curiosity about the, maybe the darkness in our lives and the stuff that we keep in the shadows. Mm. And then when I, yeah, when I discovered sexuality, that that was a thing that people had and did, I just was super, super fascinated, always reading books about the body, about anywhere I could find that would tell me about penises or (laughs) vaginas or vulvas or anything. I was like, I need all the information. And so that's what I did. And my, I was fortunate enough to have parents who were really supportive of my curiosities and my interests because they saw them as healthy, normal development stuff. They weren't afraid of them, I guess you could say, as many parents might be. And then I went through university and I I thought I was going to be the prime minister. So I studied politics and then quickly was like, no, (laughs) (laughs) that's probably not for me. And then I trained as a counsellor and thought that I was going to do child sexual trauma. So I thought, you know, darkness, secrets, shadows, sex, bodies, So I was like, this naturally fits in sexual trauma, but never felt like I landed. So would always finish a day with kids or young people and be like, I'm just, it doesn't, it's not quite it. I don't know what's missing, but this is not me. And it wasn't that I struggled with the issues because I've always been really comfortable in the dark subjects. But then I, I felt constantly pulled to adults and relationships and what was the darkness that sat there? Mm-hmm. What shadows did the relationships have? And then how was their sexual well-being? And naturally, adult sexual well-being, if you have go on to have children, impacts your children's ideas oh. about sex and gender and stuff. So yeah, that's the overarching story. Wow. And just to even hear that you are comfortable to sit in the dark spaces, that's not something people are normally good at. It's not something I think in our church spaces too that we're often very good at. Yeah, I just, there's no other way to describe it but that I really love it. (laughs) So I really enjoy trauma. I really enjoy 
like people's terrible stuff and it's mm-hmm. not that I am happy that they've gone through it mm. but I so enjoy being the person to sit with them in it wow. so I don't ever feel really overwhelmed wow if that makes sense and I think that's not everyone and that's mm. where you know personal you know some people call it a gift some people call it a calling that's where I know that I'm supposed to be mm. yeah so can we take it back you mentioned talking about healthy sexuality I wonder could you define what you mean by healthy sexuality yeah so I've kind of got two different thoughts about that one is more factual and the other is more of a metaphor so I'll go with the metaphor Ooh. first basically if you can imagine wandering through a forest right? So if you've got the picture in your mind of the forest. (laughs) So if you can imagine wandering through a forest, there are parts of that forest that are easy, like easy hikes, that the path is clear. Maybe there's a bit of sun kind of coming through. It feels warm. You know where you're going. It feels smooth. And you've got someone next to you holding hands and you're walking through that forest. And it's like, this is a fun time we're enjoying this. It feels good. Our bodies feel good, but our soul feels good. We're connected. It's all the goodness. But then there are other parts of the forest that are a bit trickier to walk through. So maybe there's not a clear path. Maybe there are bits that you stumble over. Maybe there are parts that you feel like you might not make it to the end and you might struggle to stay holding hands in the process. That is like our sex life. So the forest is our whole life with a person or people. And there are parts of that that are really easy. There are seasons of life. There are seasons of our sexuality that are smooth sailing. Mm. And it's like, you know, we hold hands and lovely connection and lots of pleasure and goodness. And then there are other seasons which are much trickier. The goal is that we can stay holding hands through the different seasons. So it's not about healthy sexuality is not necessarily, in my view, not everyone might think this is not necessarily in my view, perfect loveliness all the time. That's not real life. Mm. You know, I've had three children. There's not perfect loveliness all the time (laughs) in the the postpartum season. You know, there's challenges there, real challenges. And, but the, the goal in long-term healthy sexuality is that we stay connected to our partners and that we navigate the seasons. So that's my metaphor. Cool. Does that make sense? Thanks. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay. So if I jump to the factual pieces of what makes good sex, so that's maybe more of the, the encounters that someone might have as opposed to the lifelong sexuality piece, there's the five pillars (laughs) these all start with c because that's how i like to speak is just when everything starts with the same letter (laughs) so the first is obviously consent it's really important that you are fully participating Mm -hmm. in the sexual event that you feel enthusiastic about it you're not reluctant Uh, the second is that there's communication that you feel Mm -hmm. you can talk to the other person before during after about what's going down or what's happening how you felt about it the next is comfort so it's important that there's pleasure for both people often there's a lot of pleasure for one person and less for the other so we want to make sure mutual pleasure is at play connection so that doesn't necessarily mean you know I need to feel like they deeply love me or I deeply love them although that's probably nice for lots of people that's not what they're looking for they might just want to feel respected and that they feel 
cared for that somebody is trying to not just do something to them but be with them mm. the encounter. and then the last one is care and that is essentially that it's a safe practice mm. so people aren't scared of getting pregnant if they don't want to people don't fear stis things like that they don't fear their body being in pain and those are the physiological stuff that we need to feel safe in our bodies in order to fully relax into pleasure usually so those are that you've got the metaphor and then those are the those are the factual stuff around one encounter. Mm. And those five pillars seem like they could apply in all sorts of areas of life, yeah. right? Like that's not just sexual, which is, yeah, so that's those are really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking we could almost kind of unpack all of those. But yeah, <laughs> yeah same. <laughs> and even the communication thing, it just made me think, you know, often we don't even realize that keep communicating during and after like what do we feel afterwards and the safety to be able to talk that really stood out to me yeah for sure so there's something that I call the post-game debrief (laughs) and so in a in a, in a relationship where there's safety and care and concern and, and and often commitment to some degree or another, there should be a feeling afterwards that you can say what you loved about your encounter with the other person and maybe what didn't work for you. And where it's not comfortable to do that, we don't have really healthy sexuality, you know, because you can't yeah. say, hey, look, that wasn't, you know, my favorite piece or I really like to do that bit differently. And where we can't express what we desire and want to try or experiment with or whatever, then there's not freedom in the relationship. And that's what we want in healthy sexuality. Wow. Even that as a concept. I wonder if people have heard that before. Yeah, I mean, you do have to be told that, you know, somebody needs to say, hey, it's really important that you feel you can say what you want, how you want it, and what you don't want. Mm. And it's important you can do that before, during, and after, you know, that you can withdraw consent even requires that you need to communicate. Yeah, unless somebody has said that's going to be an important part of your sex life, then they feel, you know, obviously awkward. There's some discomfort there, fears of rejection for the other person, et cetera. But if we're talking about what the goal is, what's healthy, then that's that's part of it. And then thinking back to that great imagery that you gave us, I think one of the things that maybe trips people up is this myth that it's supposed to feel good all the time or be easy all the time and not to realize that things will change. Could you speak to us about that? How often are you talking with couples about that, those myths? Yeah, I mean, that particular one all the time. (laughs) People often go, oh, it was really good, you know, before, before we got married or in the early stages of our relationship. And then it all just kind of went, well, well, after that. (laughs) And they say, you know, we want to go back or we want it to be different. We want it to be how it was. And part of the the journey is going, well, no, we can't do that. You know, we're in what we're in and we're in the season that we've got. And so how do we navigate that season? What a lot of people don't understand is the impact of hormones, for example, particularly on women and how that shapes their sexuality. But then also for men, they start to decline in testosterone, for example, after about the age of 40. So I get clients, you know, who they'll, a couple, they'll come and say like, oh, you know, he just doesn't really want it anymore. And we've had years and years of great sex and now he's not interested. And I'm like, well, how old were you when that started happening? And there's a, there's a pretty common theme there. 
where the body is just doing stuff without our permission, <laughs> essentially. And we have to ride those waves. So sex doesn't look the same through all ages and all seasons. There's lots of other things at play, whether you get injuries, you know, various things. And it's the goal is like, let's try and hold hands through through the journey. Mm. And are there other myths that you encounter frequently in, in your space? And if, if so, what are they? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so there's a few. Mm. Um, I guess like back to that one about gender as well, you know, this concept that that men want sex all the time and that they have the higher sex drive. So I think a lot of people believe that. And if we were looking at society as an overall, we could go, okay, yes, usually. Right. But that doesn't mean all the time. And there are enough people enough men who don't fit into that camp that it's totally normal and okay. So they often don't want to admit it because they feel like, oh, maybe that threatens their masculinity or they're going to be perceived in, in a, you know, in a problematic way or whatever. But actually it's just totally normal and fine that one person desires sex more often than the other. That's, I would say that that's like most relationships, no matter who it is, that one person has a greater or lesser desire than the other libido. So that's one. I would say, you know, body parts are a big deal. So some people think that, um, for example, penises need to be really big and that that's the way that, you know, sex is enjoyable and good. That's a really common myth. Ultimately, it's not about the shape of anyone's body part or the way that their body looks, you know, not just thin people have great sex <laughs> like not just young people have great sex so ageism is often at play as well um that once you know once you get to a certain age obviously you stop or it's a bit creepy and gross that's a bit of a myth as well the hymen uh, is another one so that the hymen breaks and that it's a thin piece of skin that covers the vagina and that that must break on the first penetrative encounter and then there's blood, et cetera. That's the hymen is not a thin piece of skin that covers the vagina. Otherwise, nobody would ever get their period. That would be a problem. <laughs> so uh, you also it could have it could have stretched or um or you might have had bleeding at other other um parts of your life prior to having sex for the first time. Uh, and then the other one, from what I understand of this podcast, you're speaking to a faith-based community. That's right. Yep. That right. Mm, mm. So the other one that I get a lot is this kind of transactional idea that if somebody abstains, that that must mean they're going to have really great sex because oh, like, yes. God's going to reward them <laughs> for that. And it's all going to be great and lovely and good. And the opposite, that if they haven't abstained, that they're going to have lots of issues in their sex life. So it's this transaction that's supposed to happen that is a myth. It's a total myth. It's, that's not the way it plays out. No. And obviously with those myths, the disappointment that people must feel because it's not matching up with what they imagined it to be. And then obviously that's kind of connected to what you are talking about at the beginning, that where shame can build up in those spaces. Yeah, shame's a real biggie. So that's where you don't feel that you are adequate, mm. that you are normal, okay. It's shame is there's really two parts. So there's the guilt versus shame piece. Yeah. And then there's the shame about who I am and what I bring, which is different 
from guilt, yes. the guilt yes. shame bit. So shame can function in, in, in different ways or it can present differently. So if you think, for example, you know, my body is not what's desirable, then you might bring shame into your mm. sexual encounters. Or yes. if you think I've had heaps of casual sex and now I'm in a relationship with the other person as a virgin, I bring heaps of shame and because of my behaviors. So there's two functions of it. Yes. And that was actually one of the questions that was put to me. What happens when you've got someone who has had a different experience and they're bringing that together? Yeah, I mean, I would say that's the norm. It's most common that there's two different backgrounds that mm. are coming to the party. <laughs> and that's so that's okay. First off, people need to know that it's normal and okay that there's different experiences that are there in your relationship. There's nothing strange about that. And this is just one of the navigation pieces. So one person might struggle with feeling like they're not going to compare. Yes. That they're not going to be the same as somebody in the past. That is the complexity about have one person having had lots of sexual experiences is that it, it more often impacts the, the other partner who hasn't hmm. than it does the person who has, if that makes sense. So, you know, there's ways that we need lots and lots of affirmation. We need lots of encouragement. We need more communication. We go to kind of hyper-communication than another couple can afford to not have as much maybe. Yeah, there needs to be maybe some new experiences formed that haven't been formed in the past with other partners, but also uh, the partner who hasn't had as much sex or, or intimacy as the other in the past, they have to come to a place of feeling chosen and knowing that they are the one mm. who was chosen. So, you know, they could have, the person who's had lots of experience could have probably chosen lots of other people, but didn't. So there's then they need to come to a, a knowing and acceptance, a peace about that. Wow. So as as you acknowledge, this is a podcast reflecting on changes that are needed for for church spaces. I understand you sort of grew up in in that church space, and so you, you would have had some experiences or perhaps reflections in all of your studies around those experiences. My experience of church is that it's really difficult to have this conversation, certainly at any level of depth or, to be frank, helpfulness. Do you have thoughts, as you've reflected over the years, around how that could be done better within a more religious space? So, yeah, my reflections on how it, yeah, I would have, same with you, Stephen, like definitely felt like there wasn't a lot of chat about it or the chat that did have that did occur was like a don't do it don't watch porn don't masturbate don't have sex sometimes even like don't kiss or date so not a lot of do's <laughs> yeah. yeah and some pretty pretty painful harmful messaging around gender mm. and we know that one of the biggest impacts in your whole life and your mm. sex life will be your ideas about gender. Wow. So that's one of the most fundamental pieces to how people have sex with their partners. Can you but, unpack that a little? Yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, if you think gender, you think about your gender messaging, it's a, it's who am I? So it's an identity. Gender is an identity, ultimately, like issue. Mm -hmm. And so if your identity is wrapped up in some problematic, harmful, unhealthy untruthful actually like not factual messaging then the what you bring to your relationship and the sex that you have is going to be reflective of that 
if you don't have the right facts about who you are and how your body functions, then you're going to bring that in. Right. If you think sex is for men and not for women, and you both think that, then you're going to have a sex life that's ultimately about the male gaze and it's going to be dominated by his pleasure and not yours. Mm. If you think that wives should do whatever is requested of them because men just need a lot of sex, mm. then you're going to have a sex life that's, again, surrounded. It's, essentially, it's, it's, it's a lot of non-consensual sex because you might end up with a, with a female partner who actually doesn't want to have a lot of sex but thinks that they should. So mm. it's pressure. Mm. but it's it's a pressure based around gendered ideas so it impacts those from a faith communities and those from non-faith communities we all get messages about gender based on largely media and our parents and our schools and the sex education we grew up with etc and we bring all that mm. to our mm. partnerships and it doesn't end well if the messages were, were problematic mm. And it makes me think too, where do you go to have those messages challenged and even know that you actually can challenge them? Because unless you're in some really good mentoring or relationships where you can have those kind of conversations, often we don't even know that we've got those and that we can challenge them Yeah. until obviously things start to unravel and then you go, something's really wrong, <laughs> at which maybe point people then are thinking we need some help but yeah and then I was thinking too about as pastors and maybe as people are in these in ministry if we don't deal with our own or even aware of our own maybe shame that we've internalized then people coming to talk to us aren't going to get any better advice yeah absolutely so it's all addressing your own stuff ideally before journeying this with someone else you know I'll give you yeah. a classic example of a couple that I've worked with but also representative of you know so many so it's a really general experience of people who grow up in faith communities is this strong idea around self-sacrifice so you sacrifice yourself for your partner in marriage and you put your yourself second and you put your body on the line you know like they always come first that's in and of itself yeah sounds nice like by itself like if you just oh that sounds lovely like you sacrifice yourself for your partner that's like you know a loving thing to do that sounds really great but what does that mean when it comes to sex mm -hmm. that means somebody going I don't want this but I have to do it anyway yeah that's not great self-sacrifice in a sexual relationship is not healthy mm -hmm. because that's not consent that's not being fully present. That's going, I have to. Hmm. And so we've got these nice ideas, but when it comes to sexuality, it just doesn't work. And you end up with resentment. You end up with very, you end up with cycles of pain. Long-term you get, in, you end up with a loss of libido. You know, there's so many things that go wrong when we push ourselves into sex when we don't want it. Mm. Yeah. And when these things are going on, I suppose I'm what I'm also thinking is how does this affect our well-being then? It's an interesting one. I find that couples who are struggling in their sex life or in, in, in intimacy, the other facets of their relationship can still be really strong. Okay. But they just don't have 
as honest a communication about this bit. So if you can imagine they bring 90% of themselves to the relationship and that 90% could be really good, but they leave 10% behind. And so in an ideal world, we really bring 100% of ourselves to the relationship. But that's not to say that couples who are struggling in this space don't have a lot of strengths as well. Yeah. So I, to be honest, what I observe, for example, couples who have pain in sex, so where it's literally they're experiencing pain in their bodies due to penetration, I often find that they have really, really healthy other parts. And it's almost like, you know, if you've got a, a building on pillars, one of the pillars is, is not strong and the other one gets props it up. So I interestingly find that they have, you know, they've got a lot of romance or they do a lot of quality time or they're really emotionally supportive of each other. They've learned how to make the other areas of their relationship strong because they can't rest on that one. Yeah, so it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Whereas some couples who've got a really strong sex life, love sex, have it all the time, heaps of orgasms, all the goodness, the other parts of the relationship can actually not be as strong sometimes because they rest on the sex. Hmm. So maybe they don't do conflict super well because they avoid it by having sex. <laughs> Whereas couples who don't do that sometimes do conflict really well. Yeah, so there's. it's not to say that if this part of your relationship isn't strong, that the other parts won't be. It's just that not all, not the 100% of yourself is there. Mm. Mm, that's really interesting. One of the other questions I had was, because, you know, again, you're listening to people's stories. What are some of the most commonly asked questions that you get? Yeah, there's a few that I've already mentioned. You know, there's the mismatched libido one. So why don't I want it? Why don't they want it? Why do we want it at different frequencies or different regularities? So there's that one that's very, very common. And then I work a lot with sexual pain, very common for women who've come from faith-based circles or from religious communities. It's more common in religious communities than it is outside of them. There's lots of reasons for that. And there's the, why don't I want sex at all? Like, why don't I want to be touched? Um, Why don't I like it? And then the other one that I deal with a lot is how do I rebuild trust um, after Mm. there's been a breakdown and also see more of that probably in faith-based communities where trust is more easily broken. Yeah. So those would be like the top ones that I have all the time. Yeah. So you mentioned there's, there's lots of reasons for people from a faith context coming to you and speaking about pain, their experience of pain within their sexual encounters. Can you talk a little bit about some of those reasons? And because obviously there's we need to deal with that within our faith communities. Definitely. It is so much more prevalent than people expect. And mm. there is total silence around it. Mm. Because if you're supposed to have great sex after you've abstained, for example, then the fact that it's really painful and you never want it doesn't reflect well. <laughs> you know, people want to have a nice story. Yeah, And if the story isn't nice, it's really hard to tell people. Mm. So, yeah, it's really prevalent. See it a lot. Physios see it a lot from mm. people from faith-based communities. So the most common reason for that happening is, if you can imagine, for years and years, sometimes decades, people have poured cold water on their bodies. So when they felt aroused, when they 
maybe even climaxed with a partner if they were doing that without having penetrative sex when they started feeling interested in sex when they saw a sex scene on a movie and they got their body did a little tingle which is really normal and natural they poured cold water on that Mm. so they were like shut it down shut it down this is bad this is wrong that doesn't go away within Mm. 30 minutes of marriage ceremony Mm. so the body, particularly a woman's body, the if I'm going to get specific here, but it will there will be so many people listening to this for whom this is their experience. So I really want them to know what's going on in their bodies. So if you can imagine the the vagina, so it's like a tube inside, it's surrounded by muscles. Mm-hmm. And what happens when the body's been poured cold water on it, or it feels like oh now I have to do this thing that I've been told is so bad forever, is the muscles just clamp down. And they just literally shut off the vagina for penetration. Some people experience this even when they're putting tampons in, for example, because anything to do with genitals is like gross and dirty and we shouldn't touch it. So that clamps down. But lots of people experience it as soon as they start having penetrative sex from religious communities because it's like your body doesn't just relax into intimacy. Mm. And that's what's needed. The muscles have to be relaxed in order to have penetration. The body doesn't just do that because you exchanged vows and rings. Mm. Like you're really undoing decades worth of cold water. Mm. It takes quite a while to heat up. (laughs) (laughs) And so you often as well, they do a lot of pushing through. So they're like, oh yeah, no, I was told it would be painful the first time and just need to keep going also I need to be a good wife also gender Mm. also guys need sex so got another gender message there and so just need to keep going it will get better one day but what happens to the body because it's experiencing a trauma is that it goes no way and it just further closes off so you lose libido like completely you often lose all types of arousal. So what felt good before stops feeling good. People describe it like, you know, now when they touch me, it could basically be my elbow. Like the body numbs out, but also avoids. The body is avoiding anything that might represent that pain. So I don't like kissing anymore. I don't really like it when they try to snuggle me in bed. This is when with all that pushing through, you're not getting anywhere. It in fact is just reinforcing the messaging to your body that this Mm. is unsafe. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. Even as you're saying it, that the body has gone into preserving itself. It's gone into self-preservation mode. Totally. So it's doing the right thing. You know, if Mm. something's flying at your eye, your eyelids close. Yeah. So that's a, that's a physiological function that we're not in control of. And that's, it's, it's right. The body is right to do that. Mm. So that's why pushing through won't work because you're just reinforcing it to the body that it needs to do that. So you really, really, really have to get some help. And I, so all the time I just wish like in, you know, religious communities, faith-based communities in those early marriage years, if that's the first time you're having penetrative sex, like if it's not feeling okay after six months, talk to someone. Mm. Like don't wait five years. And this is where I wish, like, ironically, there's more conversation about sex pre-marriage than there is post. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yes. 
because like oh it's all good now yeah. yeah there's a void of it so it's kind of yeah. like now now you're allowed to but then there's there's no follow-up yeah totally and everybody's like phew okay they're good mm. and now we just got to worry about all these young people yeah and who's going to admit on their honeymoon that it actually was really difficult and really hard mm-hmm. who's going to own up to that yeah no people don't want to so then they come to me you know 5 10 15 20 years later mm. and that is something that we could i mean partly prevent but definitely we could help in the very early years i mean even what you've just said without sort of going into too much but i didn't know that my that that is a muscle yes and that under stress it tightens yeah exactly we we don't even un- understand our own bodies yeah, there's so much people don't understand about their own bodies. You know, a, a woman needs 20 to 30 minutes to get adequately aroused to be able to fully enjoy penetration. <laughs> Physiologically, like that's just the body. The vagina extends, it gets wider to allow for something to go inside of it. But nobody's told that. No. And if you don't have, again, the safe spaces with which to talk to somebody I mean, just in my own experience, I was lucky that I had very honest, open conversations with my mum. And I was able to say, rather than wait five years, go, it's not working. I need help. Yeah, that's so good. But I had that. I had that safe space. So I didn't internalize, you know, harmful messages that there was something wrong with me. Mm. I was able to talk to another woman who was able to really help me. But how do we change that? And I suppose that's the what we're trying to do here is to at least open up the conversation so that people can find those safe spaces. Yeah. I mean, we start early, don't we? You're starting to give messaging and teaching about sexuality when children are very little because we're teaching them about gender, we're teaching them about their bodies, we're teaching them about consent. So it all starts way back there. And then the messages that we give over the years as they're young, et cetera, they become more explicit, but also, you know, they're clearer. We give more answers, ideally. Being afraid of questions is a real problem. Mm -hmm. So I was a really curious child and a really curious teenager. That didn't mean that I wanted to go and have lots of sex. Mm. like it just meant that I was really curious which all makes sense now doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) and we're very grateful (laughs) so I was I was just curious I just wanted answers to questions and Mm. we're quite afraid of people's questions because we think it means behavior that's a good connection yeah we equate curiosity to behavior but that's not the case curiosity is normal it's part of development particularly through adolescence mm. the more information we give actually it shows in the research that the less behavior there is so the more sex education we do the less likely people are to have sex earlier yeah we're getting answers to their questions and they're also learning what they do and don't want mm. in sexual partners or in their own sex life so the more we can talk the better and the more we can reduce fear the better for our young people and their long-term relationships. And I again, I just want to highlight what you're saying about the curiosity and how important that is. And if we can foster that kind of environment, we're learning then not to shut things down and we're learning that things aren't shameful. Mm. Yeah. 
So one thing I encourage people to do if they're not in a sexual relationship yet and to reduce that shame around arousal and what's happening in their bodies is that when they notice they get a bit turned on, instead of going, oh, that's terrible, we celebrate it. Mm. So we go, oh, that was great. That was nice. You get to choose what you do with that. But the message you give your body is that was really nice. That's what my body is designed to do. Isn't that cool? That's very cool. Yeah, like, but you tell yourself that. Or if you get aroused with a partner, but you're choosing not to take it any further, then you can still celebrate that. Like, isn't it great that my body got aroused and that we enjoy each other? You can decide what you do after that. You don't have to follow through. You can stop. That's fine. It's just that when we throw cold water on ourselves and we heap all this shame on, it's just so unhelpful. And we can have the same behaviors without throwing the cold water on. Mm. And just to pick up just on one small thing, and it's not that it's small, but I think historically we have not taught that our bodies are good. And that's one of the re-messaging that you're talking about is that we're trying to change that language to say our bodies are good. They're not bad. Yeah. The bodies are great. The bodies do good things. And yeah, let's celebrate them. Mm. So lots of our listeners are people who engage with scripture. And so there are messages within the Bible about sexuality and some of it healthy, some of it very unhealthy. Do you have any thoughts about the Bible's messaging around sex? Yeah, I think there's some really good stuff there, actually. Like, I think there are some great themes. One is around equality, that all genders are important and valuable and they can come to the party as equals Mm. that there's not one person that's more important than another and that comes into sex and i think that's really cool that's Mm. really great another one is around sex being really sacred and i mean that as in we can celebrate our bodies we treat our bodies with care with love with tenderness and we take our intimacy with others seriously. So we show them care, them attention, their bodies are important. And picking up on what you said, Kathy, that our bodies are just as important as our minds, as what some people might call Mm. their spirit or their soul, Mm. that our bodies are not third on the list and that they are equal to the other parts of ourselves. So we, we can treat them with as much care and attention. And then the other part that I see if you know couples that I work with who have experienced trauma or who have gone through divorce for example and who have experienced religious trauma Mm. where they've maybe come out of strongly conservative environments that have really controlled their bodies Mm. they all do sex those groups do sex a little bit differently than people who haven't experienced those things And what I like to imagine for those who have a faith is that Jesus, God, spirit, whatever word you put on it, meets you where you're at (laughs) and understands your pain and understands that you're going to function a little bit differently to maybe some other people. So there's not a universal way of being because we know that people who've experienced trauma, their bodies are actually impacted. So the way that they will use their bodies going forward uh, might be a little bit different. So I guess that's a piece that I I find really, that there's lots of empowerment and empathy mm. that could come for people who've had harmful experiences. 
from the scriptures. Is that what you're referring to, or just yeah? Like I think there's you know whatever whatever word people use for God that, and this would speak to actually all religions, doesn't matter which one, that a God who is good will meet you where you're at. Right. Yeah. So if that's something you believe, and that's you know what I grew up with, that there was a God, that there was a spirit, that that is for you. Oh, yeah. And will understand, acknowledge, empathize with your trauma, with your mm. experiences, and that you will be a little bit different potentially to others who haven't had them. So you've mentioned some positive messaging that comes from the Bible. Are you aware of things that perhaps are, are less positive that we should be aware of as faith communities? Yeah, I mean, not I'm no theologian. I think that's really important to say up front not my space. Sure. But I see a lot of pain around the submission narrative okay. uh, for couples, particularly where, you know, women who feel like they just have to have sex because that's what their husbands want, that they have to put their body on the line. You know, we've talked about that. I see a lot of pain and dysfunction that comes with that message, that narrative. I think where people feel like they are dirty, wrong, bad unwanted mm-hmm. is really painful and I think that there's probably some scripture that speaks to that yeah. <laughs> again not that I would know it off the top of my head because it's sure. not my field yeah but that's what I see with couples and that's really sad mm. you know any shame that people bring into their relationships is just really sad mm-hmm. Anything when people feel shame about their bodies and it's arousal and the way that it works, I think that's really sad. I don't think that's what the other messages are saying. I just want to say, Joe, this conversation is just the openness is so empowering. You know, I'm I've just been just so encouraged by you know what we can talk about and bringing this conversation to people. But as we are coming to an end, as a therapist, is there something that you wish you could say to people because you're hearing, you know, their stories all the time? Is there something that you could leave our listeners with? Yeah, so two things come to mind. One is for people who are having a hard time where the the intimacy is not where they want it to be. I would encourage you to seek help before it feels desperate. Mm-hmm. Talk to a professional, ideally, yeah, before you get to a place of hopelessness, you know, where you still have some hope. That's when it's great to talk to people because there's so much that we can do. Where things are at now won't be where they're at in a year's time if you get help. And then the other one is if you are a leader in a faith community, I would really encourage you to to speak about these issues, but also to engage with other professionals in this space. I think there's a lot of well-intentioned leaders. So they want to do, they want to do well by their communities and they want to help them and they want to support them. But you can't be an expert in everything. So engage in expertise elsewhere if you can. Bring in other voices where you don't 100% know what to say. Because that's completely fine. Like mm. I said before, I'm not a theologian. When my kids ask me questions about maths, got no idea what's going on. 
Right. You know, there's so much in in life that I don't know or understand. So I wouldn't pretend to like yeah. be an expert on that and share much about it. I have, a, you know, a thing that I say to my kids, which is they'll ask me, what do you think? And I say, you know, <laughs> I don't talk about things I don't know about. So wow. they, and then they, they might go, but what do you actually think? You know, which is fine. And yeah. I'll go, well, my guess. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I'll say my guess is, but I don't actually know. Because hmm. I don't want them to think that I know all the stuff. And I think that's the same for leaders. I just hmm. wish that they would not think that they have to know all the stuff. So bring in expertise where it's needed. Mm. That's really helpful. Mm. I'm really glad that this isn't the end of talking with you because we're going to get to talk to you another time Great. about porn and its effects on children and teenagers and adults. So really grateful that you're going to come back. Mm. And I'm sure as people have listened to this, they might have some more questions. So we might also have some more that we can put to you next time. Yeah, great. I'd love that. Well, thank you again for taking some time to chat with us and we look forward to chatting again soon. Thanks for having me on. It's been a joy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Changes Ahead podcast. If that resonated with you or you've got thoughts about the Changes Ahead for the church, we'd love to hear from you. So get in touch on Instagram or Facebook at Changes Aheadcast. Or email us at changesaheadpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.